This, this, this is you. KUT. KUT, Austin. Stop. This is KUT. I'm Jennifer Staten. Activists and many others in Austin believe Austin's racial climate will never improve if white people don't have the necessary difficult conversations to examine and confront racism. So how do those conversations get started? As part of KUT's ongoing coverage of race and racism in Austin, I talked recently with someone trying to spark those conversations. Carolyn Helsel is a Presbyterian minister who teaches preaching at Austin Presbyterian Theological Seminary. She spent over 10 years facilitating white congregations' discussions about racism. Helsel says she was drawn to this work when she got to seminary and realized the Christian life she had been raised to lead did not honestly address racism. It's a book that started when I was first in seminary back in early 2000s, where I had been trained for my whole life in Christian thought and tradition, and all of a sudden for the first time when I'm in my early 20s, am I realizing that racism is still a problem, not something that was in the past but is ongoing. And that felt like a cognitive dissonance to have been raised to try to live a certain way and to be prepared for ministry, and yet to not have this deeply painful reality spoken about in my predominantly white communities. Uh, So that led me on a journey of studying about this and talking about it with other people. And this book is kind of finally my, my way of saying this is how I think it might be helpful for us to talk about it. So the book is titled Anxious to Talk About It, Helping White Christians Talk Faithfully About Racism. Why do you think those predominantly white communities thinking about congregations and other groups, why are they anxious to talk about race? The title is a little bit of a play on words. Uh, When I was at the book festival in the fall, we would ask people walking by, are you anxious to talk about racism? And most often people would say, uh, no, (laughs) not really. Uh, But it does highlight the anxiety that a lot of white people have around talking about racism. And that stems from a number of different sources. One is we're afraid to say the wrong thing. Words continue to change how we refer to things, changes over time, our historical context change, and all that impacts how we talk about racism. Uh, and so one of the main reasons is we don't know what to say, but also we don't like feeling bad about ourselves. A lot of the time uh, that we're talking about racism, we're learning about Uh, how whites have been the uh, perpetrators of racism, and that makes us feel bad about ourselves, and that makes us anxious. Early in the book, you have a sentence, we should not feel shamed for getting it wrong. But it seems like that white people getting it wrong (laughs) is part of the problem. Like, shouldn't we feel something negative or at least revelatory when we do mess up and we do say something wrong? Yes, yes. I I definitely think it's important for us to have those feelings, but to not get stuck there. So often we say something wrong, we feel shame, and then we don't want to talk about it again because we don't want to repeat that experience. But looking at kind of a long-term trajectory, how do we stay engaged? And one of the you know, way that we do that is by saying my shame is not the end of this conversation. It's not the goal to make me feel ashamed. It's moving towards a place of, of gratitude and mutuality and learning from other people. You do mention that gratitude is the best framework for entering conversations about race and racism. 
What do you mean by that? Yeah, it's one of those surprises that kind of came in the midst of my studies. Some of it comes through reading a philosopher by Paul Paul Ricoeur, uh, some of his work, and looking at the word recognition. And recognition is a word that means, you know, calling something to mind. It has to do with a mental concept as well as like self-recognition. But also we use the word recognition when we're talking about, I want to recognize those who helped me to get here. And Ricoeur's work says, rather than viewing recognition as always this struggle, what if we viewed it as a gift exchange, an opportunity for us to express gratitude? And applying that framework to my own studies, I felt like, yes, that's what Christians already can tap into, the sense that we feel grateful that we have this grace from God that we don't deserve. How can we tap into that gratitude as our motivation rather than the shame and the guilt being what spurs us forward? I think definitely repentance in Christian language is is important, but also a deep motivation that goes beyond just trying to, to do right, do good, but something that comes from gratitude. Can you walk us through then what that expression of gratitude looks like when white communities, white congregations are are trying to think about race and racism? One way we can do that is to see these hard conversations as a gift. As counterintuitive as that may sound, how can we view these difficult emotions, these hard conversations as a gift in the sense that Ultimately, they may lead us to deeper relationships with people in our communities, uh, deeper awareness of what people are going through. Uh, And so even if it may feel awkward and painful, it's really a gift that we're accepting and having these kinds of conversations. A lot of this work seems to be about how we deal with and reckon with feelings and emotion, and that it doesn't really serve the purpose of moving this forward if every time a bad feeling or emotion comes up, we go, oh, that must mean it's time to stop. Exactly. And a lot of white communities don't talk about it because it's not popular. It doesn't make us feel good. So if we can move beyond those feelings and say, yes, it's part of this process, but it's not our goal. How can we move these forward? Having an atmosphere of gratitude is much more, I think, inspiring and hope-filled so that we know that we're not aiming towards our own guilt or you know self-destruction, but, but rather a, a greater understanding of how we're all knit together. I'm wondering if another barrier to starting these conversations is when a white person says or feels something like, well, I'm not racist because I'm not in the Ku Klux Klan. I don't go to Nazi marches, so I'm not racist. Isn't that a particular thread of thinking here that holds people back from moving forward? And that has to do with our historical context. So, you know, a few years ago, we had a black president and a lot of people were who were white felt comfortable saying, well, they're not racist. Look, we elected a black president. But fast forward and you see the kind of racist words that we're hearing from our administration and along the campaign trail and the empowerment that that gave to white supremacist groups. And so we see the power of words, the ways that these groups continue to gain more and more power. And how do we stop that? How do we keep that from happening in our own communities? That means all of us have to grapple with these hard realities. We're talking about white communities, white congregations, talking about race and racism. How do you define racism? Racism is a system that 
creates unfair advantages for whites while disproportionately penalizing persons of color. This isn't a new concept. It's something that was forged in the beginnings of the transatlantic slave trade, uh, justifying why we should be able to have people as property. And this, this racism, this warped imagination is what continues to keep some people in disadvantaged positions compared to, to whites. At the same time, I acknowledge that white people come from a number of different backgrounds and have their own stories and their own challenges. And I want to say, yes, yes, we all have our own struggles. And also, this is happening and we need to be able to listen and open our hearts. Uh, so, so my definition of racism has a particular context in that is a, uh, something that I view as a system. It's not something that's just individual hate acts of, of one person saying uh, a bad word or uh, an offensive uh, phrase, but it's this larger system that has infected us, that's part of the air we breathe, uh, that's something that we need to be able to uncover uh, so that we can uh, work towards eradicating it. So defining racism as as a system, how do you use that definition and approach then in your work with getting white communities, white congregations to talk about racism? I actually try to move away from definitions because one of the problems I've seen is that racism has its own world of meaning. When you hear the word, people have their own feelings and stories associated with the word. People have uh, their own beliefs of why they believe racism is not a system or it's this or that. So my approach is really to help white people understand those stories that they tell themselves about racism and to help them understand those stories so that they can hear other stories about racism. I don't think just defining something can can help people see, ah, that's, that's what it is. Uh, that's, I think, one of the deepest challenges is our inability to recognize racism. How do stories help? white people have these conversations and understand this more deeply? Stories are a natural part of our DNA. It's how we make meaning of our lives. And when you have a certain story about yourself, as I started with in this interview saying, I grew up in a white Christian community trying to be a good person. You have that story about yourself and then you realize, whoa, I'm not good because I'm part of this group that has benefited unfairly from this unjust system that that puts a, a, a real dent in your story and it challenges it, disrupts that story. So it's really important for us to understand how can we bring our stories to the table and unpack them and then learn to re-narrate them. How can we see our stories moving forward as being an opportunity for us to make a difference in the areas where we can? So you said something interesting referring back to kind of your story of origin and how you grew up. And you said, you know, you had a Christian upbringing, but that you realized, you know, you were not good because you were part of a system that perpetuates racism and advantages some people over others based on race. You didn't create that system and you don't like that system. You're part of that system. Does that make you bad person? 
I could go into theologies of sin at this point <laughs> because uh, s- some people understand sin as kind of particular acts that we do. Other people going back to early theologians say that sin is something we're born into and that we all need redemption from. And I think that's still a helpful concept because even if we ourselves haven't committed racist acts, being part of this system uh, that desperately needs redemption is is a way of calling us to act and calling us to to be more responsive to the people who we know bear the brunt of this pain and suffering. In the book, I talk about the difference between responsibility and response-ability, separating the response from the ability to emphasize that without necessarily feeling that this is all my fault, I can say, I want to deepen my capacity to respond to this situation. I want to be better at being able to respond to those that have experienced racist racist discrimination. What is racial identity development theory? Janet Helms is a developmental psychologist from Boston College and She and others have created different stages to identify ways of moving towards a healthy sense of self. Developmental theories have been around a long time. The notion that people go through stages towards maturity. And it's important for us to see that understanding ourselves within a racialized system is something that we go through in stages. One of the stages is that feeling of uh, shame and guilt And sometimes that moves into a place where we put those negative feelings then onto other people. We blame other people. You're the ones trying to make me feel bad. And it's important for us to recognize those kinds of stages so that we can look at later stages. Uh, uh, Janet Helms points out another three stages beyond that. Uh, How can we move towards more mature understandings as white people that's not dependent on views of superiority or supremacy, but is really committed to uh, to eradicating racism. The same goes also for people of color in that they have different stages of racial identity development. Um, People of color don't wake up feeling great about who they are when they are living in a racist system that constantly tells them negative messages. And so Janet Helms's work has also been important for helping people of color come to a healthier understanding and valuing of themselves. What is the the end goal of getting white people to talk about racism. What constitutes success to you in this arena? I hope that through these conversations, white people can increase their capacity to hear and sit with the pain that other people are experiencing. Because when we increase our capacity, it means we're much more likely to be able to engage with that and help work together to make the society different. Uh, if we don't have a capacity to hear that that suffering, it means that we're limited in our ability to respond. I read the book and came away with the impression that these first conversations and this first work at least needs to be white people doing this work separate from people of color. 
One of the things that I've heard from people of color over the years is that they are tired of having to be the ones to teach white people about racism. And so these conversations aren't meant to be intentionally segregational, uh, you know, keeping people of color out. Uh, I welcome anyone to these conversations, but really putting the onus on white people to do our own work and to learn what we can and not expect people of color to speak on behalf of all people of their race or community. Uh, so the emphasis on white people talking to white people is really about helping us reclaim the responsibility that we owe to this work. What's the best way then for white people to really hear stories from people of color? Because I can sit here and think that I understand discrimination, but I haven't had to feel it like a person of color has. How do I get to that correct place in an appropriate and respectful way? One of the things I'm involved with is the HBCU Truth and Reconciliation Oral History Project. One of our Austin Seminary alums, Steve Miller, has put together this listening project where we invite people who have had experiences of racial discrimination to share their stories. And these stories are video recorded and uploaded and uh, scholars from historically black colleges and universities and uh, myself from Austin Seminary and another from Baylor University get to draw from these stories as a way of educating others. One of the things this does is it allows distance between the storyteller and the story listener so that as white people continue to stumble in their ability to hear stories, they're not right there in that vulnerable moment of someone sharing this gift. Um, when people share their stories, it's really painful if another person tries to say, oh, well, that really wasn't racist, or this is what they probably meant. Uh, rather, the person needs to just be heard. And so until you can actually just hear somebody without trying to do that reinterpretation, it's important for us to have that kind of distance. This entire bundle of work and these conversations, does this translate to communities that aren't faith-based communities. Obviously, you're coming from a faith-based background, and that is your, your background and your training. But can this translate to groups that don't have faith as their underpinning? Definitely. I think gratitude is a universal virtue that people can aspire to. And there are a lot of people across our society, uh, people from other faith traditions, as well as people of no faith, who are trying to make sense of how they can jump into these conversations, even if they may say something stupid or be called a racist at some point. How do they move through those feelings? And I feel that this book can help them address those feelings and move past it so they can stay engaged in the long term. So just stepping back from your work and the book and just sort of the 30,000 foot view, how is all of this going? Are are white people getting any better at this? <laughs> That's a great question. I think as our context changes, the needs for our response changes. During the Obama era, it was important for a lot of whites to be able to 
kind of make harder statements to say we're not talking about racism in general. We're talking about white supremacy, and that's the word we need to use. We need to talk about white privilege, kind of using this harder ever, harder uh, edges to our conversation so that white people weren't lulled into a sense of complacency that, oh, we have a black president. We're not racist now. But now that we have a different president and different set of contexts, it's important for us to think across intersections and across political identities, how do we draw more people into this conversation? Because literally lives are at stake. And it's important for us to be able to broaden our language so that we can include more people in the conversation. So white people as a whole, we're going to continue to get it wrong, and we're going to continue to need to work at this and work across intersecting identities. Uh, but it's important for us to continually see that we need to learn and to grow, uh, to not feel like we've arrived. That historical context point is so interesting because on the one hand, someone might say every year that we're further removed from segregation laws on the books, we must be getting better. And, the you know, the more generations we have that are born and grow up without that having been part of our lived experiences, surely we will all get better at this. But then there's so much evidence out there to the contrary that actually feels like sometimes we're stepping backwards. Right. My seven-year-old daughter told me last night, Mom, some people are really against immigrants, but weren't the first people who came to this country immigrants? And I said, that's a great point. And apparently at seven, people are talking about these issues of immigration. Uh, my my son, who was in uh, fourth grade last year, had people yelling, build a wall, even though he had uh, Mexican-American friends that were also in the classroom who had relatives very much impacted by immigration laws. So it's important for us to not just have this Pollyanna view about our children growing up in this diverse society and assuming they're going to fix our problems when they're coming into the same world that we're perpetuating and we need to be able to make a difference for them. Carolyn Helsel teaches preaching at Austin Presbyterian Theological Seminary and is a Presbyterian minister. And Carolyn, we thank you so much for your time and your thoughts today. Thank you. Carolyn Helsel's book is Anxious to Talk About It, Helping White Christians Talk Faithfully About Racism.